Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And thank you for joining us once again for part two of our Pottery Cottage episodes. And before we start, a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. We have Margaret Napier, Violet, Daniel Suge and Devon Floyd. Thank you so much, guys. Your support means the absolute world to us. It really does. So last time we heard about Billy Hughes and his life of crime, the events leading up to the 12th of January in 1977 and his escape in the taxi taking him to court. And we begin this part back in the cottage where he is holding the occupants hostage with 10-year-old Sarah on her way home from school. So Sarah got the bus home from school that day as normal, but when she got home there was a man in the house. Billy had hidden his weapons so as not to frighten her and he was sat down and her mum told her he was just there because his car had broken down and he was waiting for the AA. Sarah was a really smart kid and she asked lots of questions, wanting to know why hadn't she seen his broken car outside, stuff like that. But Billy managed to charm her too and she soon got on with making a cushion that she'd been sewing and Billy even managed to kind of help re-thread her needle at one point, which was kind of a really strange juxtaposition of this guy holding them hostage, but actually being quite um, like paternal, really. Everything seemed to be okay. But then Sarah spotted the axes and her suspicions were raised. And following a phone call with a concerned neighbour, during which Jill kept up a facade of everything being okay, Billy began cutting out electrical wires from all the appliances and Sarah got more upset. Jill did her best to calm her daughter down and sat her in front of the telly. Richard was due to come home soon too, and so Jill tried to encourage Billy to stay calm, saying, my husband will also do what you ask, they're all going to be good until he was able to leave. But Billy didn't want to risk the man fighting back because he expected he would want to defend his family like the older Arthur had already attempted. So he immediately held a knife to Jill's throat. So when Richard got in, he knew Billy meant business. Jill explained to him what had been happening that day and Richard immediately offered his car keys to the intruder and Jill said to him, see, I told you he would cooperate. But Billy was on the offensive and he aggressively ordered Richard to get on the floor and he tied him up with electrical cables. So once Richard was bound, Billy tied Jill up with washing line and then Amy after this. Arthur came through to see them all tied up and he was furious. He demanded to know what he thought he was playing at and Billy grabbed him, threw him to the floor and held him down and tied his legs and his wrists together whilst the man fought back as hard as he could. But Arthur with his artificial leg was no match for this younger, stronger man. Sarah, who had heard the commotion, came running in and she flailed at Billy, shouting that he was a bully, leave her family alone, and she was in floods of tears. She cuddled up to her dad and she yelled at Billy, just don't hurt them. Next, Billy ripped up tea towels and cloths and he humiliatingly took the Minton's dentures out and he gagged all of them. He carried Richard up the stairs in a fireman's lift and put him on the bed in the spare room. Then he took Jill up and put her on her bed and next he took Amy to Sarah's bed. Suddenly the phone rang and Sarah shouted whether she should answer it or not and Billy flew into a panic. He grabbed Jill, he threw her in front of the phone and ripped out her gag and she answered the phone but kept up the facade whilst talking to Richard's nephew and then Billy gagged her again and put her back on the bed and the cottage fell silent. Apparently Richard's nephew kind of just didn't even think anything was up. The phone call just didn't even raise the slightest bit of suspicion. But you wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't think 
something like that was going down, even if you noticed that the person on the other end of the phone was like speaking with a bit of a shaky voice or something, you wouldn't kind of be like, is everything okay? Are you being bound and gagged over there? So I do kind of get that. But yeah, I mean, that's awful for him because once he would have found out what was going on over there sort of days later, how bad must he have felt? It's awful, isn't it? He um, Even though he's done nothing wrong. Exactly. He was just ringing to say, has Richard come back yet? Because he'd been away for the day um, for work. And she was just like, oh, he's not back yet. I'll get him to call you when he's ready, like when he's here. And he was like, okay, cool. And that was it. But can you imagine, like, she she couldn't say anything because Billy was stood there holding a knife to her saying, you need to answer the phone like normal. But she would have just been wishing that she could raise the alarm in some way. So the cottage fell silent and I imagine they were just led there, kind of painfully tied up, wondering whether this man had left or not. Led there kind of thinking, do I try and escape or not? Just thinking, what the hell is going to happen next? Exactly. So luckily, feisty Sarah shouted up, he hasn't left, he is just being quiet, which I just love her for doing. Um, So then Billy grabbed her and marched her over to her grandparents' side of the house. He tied her up and he left her on the bed in the spare room. Amy then did get herself loose and she made her way into the room where Jill was, but Jill warned her Billy is still there. And so the grandmother rushed back to her room and regagged herself, but Billy had heard it all and he stormed up and tied her up even tighter than he had before. He marched back downstairs to where Arthur lay in a chair in the lounge, bleeding and defenceless, and he dragged him off the seat. He grabbed his knife and he plunged it into the defenceless old man over and over again until he was dead. It was impossible to tell how many stab wounds he had inflicted, but it was at least a dozen. Heaving the body back into the seat, he covered his victim with a coat and he left the room, blood dripping from the knife. I've got to say at this point, this this appears, even though Billy has already assaulted the prison guards on the way to the cottage when he was kind of being escorted to court and he's stormed into this home, this still feels quite out the blue, that he suddenly flipped and killed him and killed Arthur as he's laid in that chair. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That's it, I'm still shocked by it and I feel that I shouldn't be. It really is because everybody's tied up. He could just take their car and go. I know that obviously the weather's horrendous, but they're all tied up now. No one is a threat to him. So that was, for want of a better word, it was unnecessary to kill Arthur. Completely. And it gets worse because he now knew that he had to get rid of the other person who had stood up to him so much. He marched through up to the spare room where Sarah was tied up in the bed and rained down blows with his knife on her tiny body, sparing no mercy in his savage attack and continued the frenzy even after the 10-year-old was dead. So after this, he locked the door that joined the two cottages together. He cleaned the knife, he ran himself a bath, and got himself cleaned up. The remaining three members of the family lay on their beds, unaware of what had happened in the adjoining home, and as Billy had turned off the lights, they were also in the dark. Jill had heard thuds and then silence, and then she'd heard a bath being run, and then silence again. Eventually, Billy arrived at her door with a mug of tea, which she gratefully accepted, and then he offered her a cigarette, which she also accepted, and she asked what had happened, but Billy lied and said he just had to move her dad, and he'd kind of had a bit of a struggle with him when he was moving him, and he then left his own half-smoked cigarette on the bedside table and went and took mugs of tea to Richard and Amy. Then Billy returned to Amy, and she knew what was coming. She tried to scream, she tried to get away, but the gag meant that she made no sound, and the ties kept her there. 
and Billy ripped at her clothes and then forced her to remove the last few items. Her last option to avoid being raped was to plead with him and say that she got her period, so he relented just for a second and then forced her to give him a blowjob instead. And then after the assault, he tied this her back awful. up. This is awful. I know. Oh, I, it just, it's horrific. He could have just taken their cars and gone. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in shock. I'm just in shock. Yeah, it's, it is so shocking, isn't it? It's absolutely horrific. So after the assault, he tied her back up. He left the three of them upstairs in the dark and he sat down in the lounge across from Arthur's dead body and drank and smoked and kept watch. So it was now Thursday and the police were continuing to search for their escaped prisoner, following up on every report that they could from the public. The day before they had searched over 200 buildings and they had also visited Tess and also Billy's wife Jean and the pair's daughter. Jean had been absolutely terrified and so they had taken the pair to a safe house and there's lots of stuff in Jean and Billy's background with violence within their relationship. At one point he threatened one of her friends with an axe um, which had had similarities then to the beginning of when he took the axes to threaten the family and he was stood in the kitchen with the two axes when Amy was doing the washing up. Um, there's so much about what he was like with Jean and so she was absolutely terrified but she was still his wife and like we quite often see in abusive relationships she continued to hope that things would change and would continue to go back to him and and want him to be a good husband and a good father. I kind of get the impression as well that sometimes he was a good father because he did love his child but yeah just absolutely mad. It's a bit like what you said with what he was like with Sarah in the cottage. He he was almost paternal towards her and then killed her. So, you know, we're dealing with an absolute psychopath. And this is it exactly. The the rage in him and this kind of like little man syndrome that he was clearly suffering from, he just flips. So Tess really bravely took undercover police officers on trips to places where she and Billy used to hang out. Chief Inspector Howes, who was in charge of the investigation, utilised helicopters from the Army Air Corps unit that were offered due to a training exercise being cancelled. So these would be great to scour the moorland that was too dangerous and treacherous for men to tackle on foot. But all they could see from the sky was perfect white snow. Any footprints or tracks left by Billy the day before were just covered up. The police searched another 112 buildings on the Thursday morning and the police were convinced they were searching the right area and continued to focus on the two and a half miles between the abandoned taxi and the A6. And frustratingly, this didn't include Eastmore, where Pottery Cottage was, and where Billy and the family were waking up after a horrific first night, bound and tied and kept captive in their own home. So Billy brought Jill downstairs and told her that he'd seen helicopters and he made her make them all tea and breakfast. She kind of said to him, well, the army quite often do exercises, so don't worry. And it was quite just relaxed downstairs at this point. She did say to him that she needed to ring Sarah's school and ask to see her daughter. But he told her the girl was asleep and basically just said to her, you need to ring in sick to work and you need to ring in sick for Sarah's school. So she rang work and said she was off sick and then Billy told her to take the drinks upstairs and she went and spoke to her mum and reassured her that Billy was taking drinks to Arthur and Sarah 
And then she went in and she sort of just hugged her husband for absolutely ages. She told him what had happened the night before and they cried together and hugged again and they made plans for a family holiday to get away once all of this was over. Suddenly, there was a knock at the front door and Billy lost it again. He demanded that Jill sort out whatever it was, saying, are you expecting somebody? And she could see that it was the company that removed the septic waste tank. So she kind of did know that they were coming but had forgotten what day it was. So they kind of just come along on a regular basis. So she let them get on with it as normal. And then they came and asked her to sign the clipboard at the end to say they'd done the job. And again, she just did it all as normal and just said goodbye. It's really difficult because she says she could have written something on the clipboard. She could have left a note. She could have tried to say something. But if Billy had noticed any shock on their faces, he'd have known that she'd raised an alarm So she just couldn't risk him going and hurting her family. And she was just in so much fear of Billy attacking her family. But equally, she was sure Billy was going to be on his way soon enough. Like, she was convinced he was heading off soon. She didn't know that he's killed two members of her family already. And so the family's first opportunity to get police help drove away. As she turned back into the house, Jill noticed Arthur's lifeless form in the lounge through the window and she demanded to see her dad. Billy refused, saying Arthur was sleeping, but Jill wasn't convinced. She recalled the thuds from the night before and she was really worried. Richard called his office to say he wouldn't be in work and then Billy told Jill that he wanted to see if the coast was clear and he told her that she would be driving into town on an errand to get cigarettes and a paper whilst he waited at the cottage with her family. There's a little bit as well information about how when Richard rang work, he was really short on the phone and really curt. And then they actually rang back. Someone else from the office rang back to check he was actually okay. So many different people, like you said earlier about his um, cousin, I think it was, just had these conversations with them on the phone and nobody suspected anything. But then they obviously did at work if they called him back. Yeah, they called him back just to see what was going on. But He said they all had flu and they were kind of like, oh, fair enough. That's why he sounds weird. So Richard whispered to Jill about potentially raising the alarm if possible, but Jill said she'd seen her dad lying in the chair with a coat over him and she didn't want to risk anything happening to any of them. So when Billy tied Richard up, she drove off and she took her mission really seriously. She was relieved not to encounter any police roadblocks and at the newsagent, she picked up the requested items and then drove home a different route, checking for police as well. The coast was clear, so Jill headed home, really pleased with herself that it had just gone so well. Phew, Billy's going to be out of their hair soon. So while she was gone, Billy had dragged Arthur's body into a corner and hidden it, and when Jill returned, she couldn't see her dad through the window, and Billy lied, saying he's gone upstairs to lay down. Um, He's gone to his bed because the chair's really uncomfortable, and this put her mind at ease because she felt like she must have just been mistaken about him being dead or injured. After all, there was no way that Billy could have lifted the weight of her dad up the stairs. She wanted to know that Sarah was okay as well, seeing as how she hadn't heard or seen her daughter since the night before. But Billy refused her pleas, and she didn't want to anger him anymore, so she relented, and went up and saw her mum and loosened her gag and gave her a drink. God, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? (laughs) It's horrible. Can you imagine seeing your mum in that position? Mm Mm-hmm. An old lady. Yeah, at that kind of age, and she's been humiliated so far mm-hmm. and violently thrown around. It's just awful, isn't it? Yeah. 
So Billy told Joe he was planning to leave and that it wouldn't be long. He wanted to get his things together, he'd have Richard take him and then he would carry on alone and Richard would just have to make his own way home. So Jill was really relieved but then Billy began to fondle her and kiss her again. Ignoring her pleas he marched her back upstairs, tied her up and repeated the sexual attack from the night before. She said she sort of looked in the mirror and from the night before she had like bruises all around her neck and all over her and it's just so violent. So then he left her to get dressed and he went through into Richard's room. Jill used the bathroom and then headed downstairs where she could hear Billy and Richard were talking and Billy told her there was a change of plans and that she was going to take him. And then he grabbed a bottle of whiskey to celebrate his upcoming departure. They all headed upstairs to Amy and then they played cards on the bed before Jill cooked dinner for them all. She cooked dinner for everybody and Billy took Arthur and Sarah's plates through to them, or so he said, but obviously he was just leaving these plates of food next to their dead bodies. The rest of them sat at the table together and they ate and they were kind of starting to feel quite happy and relaxed. They were having a drink, they were playing cards but their happier moods were dashed when they looked outside to see a fresh, heavy covering of snow. Billy wasn't going to be going anywhere anytime soon. So the police were also hampered by this fresh snowstorm and all non-essential journeys were cancelled. Police patrol cars returned to base and whilst they were expected to follow up on reports still, they just weren't as thorough. Two police officers had been checking out a report of a man fitting Hughes' description knocking at a lady's door not far from Pottery Cottage. The officers had checked out her report and then they'd headed down to the Highwayman Inn, which was about 100 yards down the road from Pottery Cottage, and they showed Billy's photo at the bar. No one had seen him, so they decided to check out the home nearby and then they'd head back to base. So they walked out into the cold, snowy evening and debated about whether they should trek over to Pottery Cottage and knock on the door. There was a fire going, lights were on, there was a car on the drive, and everything looked quite cosy and natural, so they radioed in to say they were done and they left it. So another opportunity potentially, just gone. The radio newsreader reported that the police were calling off the searches due to the bad weather and Billy was really excited. He decided he would try and make a break for it. But with Jill and Richard on a trial run first before actually leaving for good. So he tied Amy up, he put water down for the dogs and then the trio left. But they couldn't get far, the car's wheels were spinning in the snow and so they returned back to the cottage And I just imagine Jill and Richard must have felt so defeated. So they asked again after their daughter, but Billy wouldn't let them see her. He even showed them a photo of his own child saying, how could he hurt a child when he had one of his own? So like you said, kind of playing on that as well, that that paternal side of things. He's then using that to his advantage. Yeah. So he told them that he needed to collect money from someone who owed him some money and Richard knew the area and said he could drive Billy there and then Billy could continue on with his car and he'd just make his own way home. So Billy agreed. They packed some bags to take but once again he wanted to take Jill instead of Richard. Billy put on one of Jill's wigs and her coat and he passed at a glance as a woman so they were set to leave. Jill didn't realise that Billy had also brought a knife with him. And so finally, once the snow had kind of settled enough that they could get the car out, he drove her over to Sutton in Ashfield to a cafe where he said he needed to get the money from someone. By now, it was past midnight. The streets were deserted and Jill waited in the car whilst Billy went in. She didn't dare run for it because she didn't know how soon Billy would be back, where she would run to if she did escape. She didn't know if it was a test and he was simply waiting and watching her. She just sat in the car and waited and smoked. 
So again, like you said, you you don't know how you'd behave in that situation. Where is she going to run no. to? It's past midnight. You just can't. You just It's easy with hindsight to think how you would behave in that situation or how she should have behaved, but it's just not that easy in real life, is it? No. And I think as well, we kind of would look at this case from our experiences in our life, but this is the 70s. Nobody had mobile phones, for example. Nobody had the technology that we have now. So I kind of think I probably would have done the same as her, just sat and waited and expected it was a trap. And you're also feeling helpless. So naturally you would go into that mode of, well, I'm I'm fucked anyway. There's nothing we can do to get out of this. Yeah. And also... So what's the point? You're kind of thinking that he's going soon anyway. Once he's got this money, he's going. So then Billy came back and he had a policeman's truncheon in his hand and he told her that a policeman had stopped him on his way back out of the cafe and he'd had to fight him off. It was a lie. The truncheon was one that he'd seen hanging on the wall. But the story of him having to beat this policeman with his own truncheon and leaving him crumpled up in a pile on the floor kept Jill worried and on edge. So she was going to do whatever Billy said with this fear of violence. When they returned to the house, Richard and Amy were really disappointed to see that Billy was back and Jill once again pleaded to be allowed to see her daughter. Again, she was refused this. And by now it was 3am and the four of them went to sleep together in one room. The family hoped for some way to escape but Billy positioned himself in front of the door and he slept with his weapons tucked underneath himself. It was now Friday, they had been captive since Wednesday and they still had no chance of escape. In the morning when everyone woke up, Jill made tea and toast and Billy took Sarah and Arthur's into the other part of the cottage and he returned telling Jill they're quite bored now And he said he was going to let them out later once he was ready to go. But he had one more errand for the Morans before he left. He required a load of items for on the run. So tinned food, a camping stove, a tin opener, a saucepan, amongst other items. And he got Jill to write out a shopping list. He then added cigarettes, sweets, newspapers. And then finally, he said that they should get a book for Sarah saying maybe she'd quite like a present. Oh, what the fuck? I know. So for the first time in 48 hours, Jill and Richard were free together. As they drove into town, Richard declared they needed to go to the police. But Jill couldn't bear the idea of their daughter and her parents back at the house with Billy. Who knew what he would do to them if he got wind that the police had been called or if he saw the police coming? They did argue a little bit about what to do, but in the end they agreed. And it was really strange for them seeing that the newspapers were suggesting this possibility of the fugitive taking a family hostage knowing that that family was them, but they had to act normal and naturally, so they got all the shopping from a few places and then headed back to the house. There was a really interesting bit where they were talking about how, as they were driving off, they stayed silent for ages, and even when they started talking to each other, even though they knew Billy wasn't in the car with them, they'd still kind of whisper and be on edge, and they knew that they'd left him back at the house. He wasn't hiding in the back seat, but they still were just so under his control. I was just going to say that shows how much under his control they were, that even when they were out in the open, in their car, he wasn't there. They were still paranoid of his presence almost. Exactly. And at one point when they were in the shop and they were buying the book for Sarah, the shopkeeper who knew Sarah had sort of said, oh, she'll like that and stuff. It's just so horrible. 
So Billy next asked if Richard's firm kept cash at the offices and when he said that they had a small amount of petty cash there, Billy told the couple that they were going to drive him over to the offices to collect it. So he sat in the back of the car wearing the wig and holding his knife and they drove off together. They arrived at the site about 6pm. So the office block was in darkness but the factory staff were still working. After letting someone know that he'd been off sick, so he was just there to pick some bits up, Richard unset the alarm system and led Billy to the company safe where they took the money that was inside. It was about £210. And then they headed back to the house where Billy was in a really good mood again. He actually took the dogs outside to play and quite often he was spending a lot of time with the dogs and they seemed to really like him and he'd make sure they all, he'd always make sure they had water and that they were safe. He then called the three of them to tell them I'm off and he was going to take Jill. They were going to stop somewhere. He'd steal another car and then he'd let her head home in their car and she could release everyone. So he tied Richard and Amy up and Jill kissed them goodbye and then the pair left. They drove out of the drive with Billy with all of his stuff in his bag and then they headed towards Chesterfield. Back at Pottery Cottage, Richard and Amy began to get their bindings loose, knowing they sat, they must have some time now to actually escape. But Billy realised that he'd forgotten the A to Z map book and he turned back to the cottage. When they got back, he pulled into the driveway sort of garden of the cottage and he told Jill to turn the car around so it was pointed out of the driveway for an easy exit. And he said he was going to change his clothes and then he headed inside. And so she just was expecting him back out any minute. When he got inside, he discovered Richard and Amy were freeing themselves and he flew into a rage again, stabbing them both multiple times. He changed his clothes and left the cottage and headed back to the waiting Jill who had turned the car around to point out of the drive as requested. But the car wouldn't start. Jill's car was stuck in the snow that had fallen. So she suggested, why don't they pop inside for a cup of tea and then Richard could swap her car's battery with his. Obviously, Billy couldn't risk her going into the house where all of her family now lay in pools of blood. So he made her go to a nearby house to ask them for help to pull her car out of the snow. So the neighbours actually thought she was drunk when she was asking for help. She was such a mess, but she just didn't dare tell them the truth. And she tried to lie, but then accidentally said Richard was tied up. Haven't they read the papers? So at that moment, the neighbour Len realised what was going on. He told her he'd be there in a sec, but he needed to go get his car. So she headed back to Billy and told him Len's going to come and pull us out. But instead, he headed into the house to call the police. Back inside, he realised that his phone line had been cut. So he didn't know this, but Billy had done it when they were away. Um, at the beginning, when they'd said, our neighbours live there, but they're away for the night. So Len needed some way to alert the police. And instead of going to tow Richard's car, he just sped away to another neighbour to phone the police. And the phone call alerted the police at just after 8pm. And so the senior officers were called back from their homes where they'd started to settle down for the evening. The neighbours whose phone Len had used grabbed their shotgun and rang around alerting other neighbours to do the same. The police set up an emergency control room in the pub car park and they got Len to give them details of the layout of Pottery Cottage. But before all of this happened, whilst Jill and Billy were sat in the car waiting for Len to tow them, Amy stumbled towards them. She had either jumped on purpose or fallen out of an upstairs window and was covered in her blood. Barely alive, stumbling in the snow, she tried to call out to them, but she just couldn't make any proper sounds. And then she disappeared into the shadows. And Jill was in shock at the horror before her eyes. 
she leapt out of the car and began to run towards the house, screaming at Billy for her family. Billy grabbed her and dragged her along the road, telling her her mum must have cut herself jumping out of the window, and she fought him all the way, but he was just too strong, and he simply dragged her at a run towards the Highwayman Inn. The pub car park was too busy to steal a car, so Billy continued to the first house that they saw. It was the home of a mechanic, Ron and his wife, and when they answered the door, Billy told them that he had broken down and he needed to bump start the car. Whilst Billy spoke to Ron, Jill caught Maggie's eye and mouthed the words, save me, and luckily Maggie realised what was going on. She told them that Ron would take them in his truck, which was in the garage, and gestured to them to head over. As Jill and Billy walked towards the truck, Maggie pulled her husband back and told him what was happening, and when he joined the pair again, they he got into the front, they all kind of sat in the front of the truck, and he drove them to Pottery Cottage. So there he attached a rope and he played for time by allowing the rope to slip a few times, hoping that his wife was able to call 999. He didn't want to enrage the kidnapper too much, so he then did begin to tow the car and finally the bump start worked and the engine came to life again. Ron again took his time untying the rope as well, but eventually he had to allow them to leave and he dashed back towards his house just trying to keep the car registration number in his head. By this point, the Highwayman Inn car park was full of police when he got there and he grabbed an officer and recounted what had just happened. Finally, the police had a lead and they put out an alert for the car. About 10 minutes later, the car was spotted. Billy, however, also spotted the tail and began to drive faster and faster. The police needed to check it was the right car, so they overtook and up ahead they pulled over and as Billy and Jill approached them, the police waved them down, but Billy wasn't going to pull over and he carried on driving straight at the officer, doing about 50 miles an hour. And I can't believe at this point just how wrong it's suddenly gone. Obviously it's gone so wrong anyway because Sarah and Arthur were both murdered on that first night, Mm. but Billy was finally going. Yeah, it is weird. There is almost no logic to this, and there never really was, because the kind of whole point of all of this was for him to see Tess, wasn't it? Yeah. To get his revenge on Tess. Yeah, his former girlfriend. Um, So that that was what it was all about. And then it was just a very poorly executed plan from the very beginning because he realised that he was never going to get to Tess. The weather was horrendous. He then just randomly ends up at this cottage. And rather than take their car and rob them and try and get away from the area, he decides to just wreak mayhem on this extended family. Yeah. I just can't... You know, of course, we we see it loads where there's no valid reason for uh, a murder or multiple murders. But I don't know. There's normally a bit more of a motive than this. And this is just fucked. He just must have been maybe having a psychotic breakdown or psychotic episode. And what a lot of people are thinking is that because he hated prison so much, he just didn't want to go back. He kind of felt this was his only way out. But... A bit like with the whole, well, and only a crazy person would go across the moors. They must have followed the road that the police were expecting. Again, he's not behaving like anyone rationally would. So the police officer dove out of the way and scrambled back to his car and the chase was on. Billy was accelerating to speeds of 80 miles an hour. And at one point, the police positioned two cars across the road with their lights flashing. But Billy swerved around them and he pushed Richard's sports car up to 100 miles an hour. Jill was strapped into the car and had buried herself low in the seat. 
and finally at a bend in the road, the police managed to push them into a wall and they crashed to a stop. But this wasn't the end at all. Billy held his knife to Jill's throat and dragged her out of the damaged car, threatening the police that he would kill her. So they had to stay back and otherwise he would have slit her throats and then he stole their Range Rover and set off again. And the chase went on for 45 minutes, reaching speeds of up to 90 miles an hour. And don't forget, this was at night time in the snowy countryside in the middle of a storm. I was just going to say, in the worst weather ever. Yeah. And they're going at like in excess of 90 miles an hour. Yeah, through the country lanes. Anytime the police attempted to stop Billy, he would just drive through whatever was in his way. The police at Bakewell Police Station were alerted to the horrific news that four bodies had been found at the cottage and that the fugitive had taken the fifth family member hostage on a crazy car chase and they were told this at about 9pm. Three of their men, Detective Constable Burton, Sergeant Cross and Chief Inspector Howes joined the chase and whilst they were behind the other cars they knew the area really well and they were also aware that Billy just seemed to be driving with no real plan. Quite often he'd double back on himself so HQ gave word that they were allowed to use CS gas and firearms if necessary and two firearms officers also began making their way towards the chase as well. The police manned roadblocks with shotguns that they had taken from farmers nearby where they could and a young police officer on duty heard on his radio that the chase was headed his way. So he commandeered a bus that was dropping off passengers and drove it to block the road into the village. Billy was happy to drive into a lot of things but a bus was perhaps too far gone for him and so with the trail of flashing lights streaming behind him he swerved and crashed into a snowy ditch and garden wall. The cars all ground to a halt behind him and a standoff ensued. Chief Inspector Howes was the highest ranking officer there so he took control of the situation and headed towards the car. Billy was holding an axe over Jill's head and he yelled that he also had a knife in her side. Howes crept closer and closer and spoke to Billy to find out his demands. At one point he asked Billy to just come and talk, perhaps at the local pub because it was freezing, and the negotiations lasted almost an hour. This is how Peter Howes has described those final moments. Some people say I was either brave or stupid, but I say neither. It was reflex action and that is what we do. I had no time to think, I just had to act. I had to save her life. He had killed four members of her family, so I knew he would kill Jill if he had the chance. I was trying to persuade him to give himself up. He was demanding another car and I thought if we could tempt him into the other car, I would have a better chance of taking him. He told Jill to get out the passenger door, but she was terrified and refused to move. He lost control and screamed at her and screamed at me and he shouted, right, your time is up and he went for her. I tried to stop him and dived through the window of the car. Then one of the firearms officers shot through the black window. It hit him in the back of the head, but amazingly it didn't penetrate his skull. It just bounced off his head and made him more wild as he continued to fight. It's like a fucking, I don't know, this kind of raging beast that they're trying to bring down and nothing's nothing's touching him. It's just winding him up further. Yeah, it reminds me of like King Kong on the side of a building sort of thing where all the yeah. bullets are just bouncing off him. Or Rasputin where they just tried so many different mm-hmm. things to just kill the bastard and he just wouldn't die. Yeah. And I mean, Jill's quite lucky as well, the fact that he's crashing into things and driving through stop signs and stuff to still be alive from those car incidences as well, like yeah. crashing into the wall. 
Alan Nichols was the firearms officer that took the final shot that finished him off. He was the first officer in Derbyshire to shoot anybody dead and this was Britain's first instance of police officers committing justifiable homicide against an escapee. His son later said, When he got home, he said to my mum, I have shot the bugger dead, but he just saw it as part of his job. He was an old-fashioned officer, he worked hard and got on with the job in hand. Alan Nichols never spoke to the press about it, and he died in 2009, having never publicly spoken about this situation. And he was awarded a bravery award by the Police Federation in 2017. And I can never pronounce the word when, like, you're given the award after you've died. How do you say that? Oh, posthumously. Posthumously. He was awarded that bravery award. Good for him. Yeah. So Jill ran out of the car and miraculously she was fine apart from a graze on her forehead. But the next thing for her must have just been so sad because she was then told that all of her family were dead and she was the sole survivor of their ordeal. That is just a weird, must be just such a weird feeling. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Yeah, you'd just be in shock. She was also then told that her father and daughter had been killed on the first night and so those fears that she'd had when Billy wouldn't let her see them had been true. And two days later, she made her statement to the police, reliving the horror that she and her family had been through. The statement was 29 pages long and she did an amazing job of recounting everything. The press respected her privacy and with the help of the police, her friends and her family, she began to get on with her life, which I just find incredibly inspiring. She did one interview for which she was paid quite a decent amount of money that her loved ones encouraged her to do so that she would be set up for the rest of her life. But she'll never allow the tragedy to be made into a film and she hasn't profited from any books that have been released. An inquiry into the prison service and the police actions was called for. Tess and Jean were also dragged through the press and there was a scandal when Billy's body was due to be buried. But I kind of don't want to go into those aspects of the story. I wanted to end with how incredibly brave Jill was to continue on her life as best she could after this, even going on to remarry and have a child. Wow. I just don't know how many people would have that strength. No, I think all you could do is just take it day by day and it would have been such a battle for her in in those early years to just get through a single day knowing what had happened to all of your loved ones, you know, that the generations of people there that have been Im- impacted. Yeah. And there's a lot that I've read about Richard's side of the family where her mum and dad had become like his mum and dad, really. They they were such a close family. Obviously, the fact that they all lived together, um, they were so close and he didn't really have much family. He's been um, fostered and adopted and... So he'd really become part of that. They were such a close family unit, the lot of them. So yeah, for for Jill to kind of go on and carry on, it's just incredible. So that is the story of the Pottery Cottage murders. Oh, that was just, it's just harrowing, isn't it? And I, I really didn't want to interrupt much because the story is so vivid and I wanted, I wanted it to be able to flow and for people to really be able to picture themselves at Pottery Cottage and, and you know, as, as if they were there on that night almost, which I could feel that I was. Um, yeah, it's just, this is just brutal, a brutal case. And I had heard of it, but there's an, there really is not much information out there on this. It's, it's ripe, isn't it, for TV? 
a drama about it and I, I get why uh, Jill would not not want to do that and I don't blame her at all for doing one interview yeah, absolutely um taking money for it I think that's absolutely fine to do that to, to set yourself up in a new life I think yeah fair enough yeah because she knew that she wasn't going to be able to sell the house or no. if she did she wasn't going to make much money compared with what it was worth mm. um that sort of thing so there were two books about this, which I read one and then I read the other when I decided to cover the case, um, which I got from Amazon on um, like on my Kindle app. So one is by Peter Howes and Carol Ann Lee, which is called The Pottery Cottage Murders. And that's really, really interesting. That goes into a lot more about Billy's background and his childhood as well. And then there's another book, which is the one I'd read first, which I was really interested in. And that's by Alan Hundle, I think. Hundle? Hundle. Um, And that was what I'd read first. So if anybody wants to read more about this case and look into it in a bit more detail, both of those books kind of go into it with some more facts as well and some more information about the inquiry into the prison service and the police service at the time and what their reactions to everything was fucking heavy heavy episode heavy two-parter this yeah i felt like it needed to be a two-parter to get as much information in as possible but i I also i knew that part two would be the the more brutal episode of of the the double bill Uh, part one very much was leading up to it and we we saw some uh, brutality in in that episode towards the end because i remember saying you know we've already covered so much crime and i know it's going to get a lot worse and it it got a lot worse than even I, I thought it would. Yeah, part one was brutal enough. It's absolutely crazy. So there we go. Thank you for listening, guys. Yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us once again. Uh, we'll be back next week. Maybe we'll have something a little bit lighter. I don't know. Um, we'll see. It'll be my case. So uh, possibly not. Who knows? I've not decided what it's going to be yet. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're also over on YouTube. And we're going to try and squeeze in a little um, episode, aren't we, later this week. We're going to throw out on YouTube. We'll put it on Patreon as well. And it's going to be part of our Seeing Red About series. And we're going to be Seeing Red About Ghislaine Maxwell. So Mm, we'll put it all over social media when it's out, but we've not recorded it yet. Uh, Having followed that case, the the case of Jeffrey Epstein, the case of Ghislaine Maxwell, um... We covered an episode on Jeffrey Epstein. We are desperate to to have a good old chinwag about Gillen and uh, what's going to happen to her. So uh, do join us for that when it's out. It should um, be later this week, I think, maybe sort of right at the end of the week. But um, but that'll be very interesting. So yeah, that'll be over on Patreon and YouTube. If you don't currently support us through Patreon, then you can find us at patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And so many of you have come over to that platform to support the show. We've got loads of stuff going on. We say it every time, but we've got more stuff than ever now to reward you for your support over there. So please do have a think about coming over there and keeping the show alive, ensuring that we're around for a good time, not just a long time. No, a long time, not just a good time. <laughs> <laughs> it's your catchphrase. It is my, it's my own fucking catchphrase, and I don't know, yeah. Um, that's it, I think, isn't it? Amazing. Yeah, thanks, guys. We'll see you again I soon. Think so. yeah. Thank you for listening, and do come and chat about the case with us on social media. Cool. We'll see you then, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.